Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to SpeechTherapyPD.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes, and we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, And in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B Y T E because it does. It did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo. <laughs> Hi folks. And welcome to first bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. We all have those days in our careers where we are struck by a moment of panic, fear, and that gut-wrenching, oh, snap, what do I do now? And trust me, this happened to me just this past week, and I'm still gnawing over if I did the right thing. Well, that's just what we are covering in today's fun and functional episode. What is the right thing, and how do we know how to do it? Today's guest is one of those rare souls whose gentleness, grace, warmth shine through her chestnut brown eyes and immediately put you at ease. Her presence providing a sense of calm and her wisdom, which I first read about in a book, Professional Issues in Speech Language Pathology and Audiology. And I read about that like a lifetime ago, way back in grad school. But her wisdom precedes her and is a benefit to all of us in the field. So, Let me go into my full-blown nerd girl crush mode and introduce the lovely Melanie W. Hudson, MACCC, SLP, ASHA Fellow, and National Director at EBS Healthcare. Melanie, I am so glad you're here, and I have so many questions. And y'all, please know 
that I am right there, way right there with you with those oh snap moments, because this past month I had to make two DSS referrals. I had a clinical practicum student with me for a session when a babysitter went out and came back in and had clearly been indulging in illegal smokables because y'all, South Carolina is not Colorado. And another situation where I was threatened with legal action for a continuity of continuity of care phone call to a physician to express true concern for Munchausen by proxy. The family member threatened me with legal action if I just talked to the doctor. So y'all, this this past month is going to go down as eventful in um, Michelle Dawson land. And um, truly, I had ethical concerns and worries and fears. So um, it was a valley. But on that note, Melanie, I am so glad you are here. So hi, how are you doing? And thank you so much. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much yourself for having me be part of your podcast. Um, yeah, we do have those those uh, those snap moments, and we <laughs> don't think we're going to have them when we're studying and we're learning to be uh, professionals, and we get very involved in our work sites and learning all the clinical skills and knowledge that we need to have in order to apply those to our our various caseloads. But it's one of those situations too that you described. You don't see it coming sometimes. And when they do, you are either um, um, intimidated, you don't know what to do, so you tend to ignore it. Um, And that is actually a common response. You Mm -hmm. just ignore it and hope that it will go away. Or you jump right into the other mode, which is, I'm going to call ASHA and report this, depending on the situation. So there's a lot of gray area. There's also some black and white area when it comes to ethics. So let me go ahead, uh, if it's okay with you, Michelle, and kind of give just a little bit of an overview of the Code of Ethics. I know everyone's had this in grad school, but um, and maybe you've read the Code of Ethics lately, but just to kind of give you the backdrop so it's fresh on your minds now as we go into some of the um, scenarios that uh, we can talk about when it comes to ethical decision-making. Would that be all right? Yes, perfect time. Okay, great. So the code of ethics, um, you need to know, applies to all ASHA members, whether they're certified or not. ASHA has about 204,000 members. Um, We have about, give or take, depending on the year, about 5,000 members of that 204-ish thousand that um, are not certified. Those could be members who have... um, retired or they decide that they don't want to practice anymore, but they would like to keep their membership. Um, So they're still members. It also applies to clinical fellows or um, audiology students in their uh, fourth year externship who are in the process of getting certified. So for SLPs, that would be the clinical fellowship. Um, So it applies to everyone that's in those categories. Can can I ask a real quick question? Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. I know... Or I heard through the grapevine at CSAP that in 2020, we're supposed to have the certification for the SLPAs. Yes. Well, um, um, they- no, not for SLPAs. Okay. Well, they have their own. No. It- yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant for ethics training. Yes. So it's actually going to be probably about 2021. Okay. Um. Did you say that or did you say 2020? I, I thought it was 2020, but I mean, if it's... No, that's why I thought you were talking about the ethics requirements. Oh, so no, 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 no. 2020, yeah. The SLPA certification, when that comes... Yes. They be held that's going to be about 2021. Okay. Um, no, but their supervisors will be because they won't be um, uh, independent practitioners. Gotcha. Okay. Just want to clarify. Uh, but any SLPA would have a supervisor of record. And they would have vicarious liability for anything that an SLPA does. Okay. That, so y'all have it right um, there. Soak that yeah. in. Perfect. Thank you. But, um, sure. But I'm glad you brought that up, Michelle, because it, it uh, just as a reminder, or maybe some of you weren't aware yet, that beginning in 2020, in order to maintain your ASHA certification, you have to complete 
a minimum of one hour of ethics training, that would be in your continuing ed, in every one of your three-year recertification cycles. So that begins in 2020. So if your recertification cycle overlaps into 2020, um, or if it begins in 2020, uh, you can just be aware of that. If your state requires it, because there are a handful of states that require ethics as, as well for your state licensure, you, you can use whatever you're taking in your state for that requirement for ASHA certification. Pretty much as long as it's got ethics in the title, you're, you're going to be okay, just so you know that. Um, so our code of ethics is organized into a preamble and four principles. And under each of those four principles, we have all the rules. Um, it's supposed to be um, designed, or hopefully it is, it is designed, but so that you can look at it and do some self-guiding ethical decision-making. It's, it's really written in, in a way that it's supposed to be user-friendly. So if you haven't looked at it in a while, take a look at it. Things are pretty clear-cut. They're, they're described pretty well there. Um, I know, Michelle, you had asked me to say a little bit about myself, and I jumped right into this. But okay. um, I did serve on ASHA's Board of Ethics, and I currently serve on the Georgia Board of Examiners for Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology. So I, I live and breathe this um, uh, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, you know, looking at, at how they're organized and, and the way our, our rules in a state or our code of ethics for ASHA are organized and are worded, they're supposed to be user-friendly. And I want you to just think of it that way. Anything that's in the code of ethics is really suggesting minimally acceptable conduct. So we get out of that thinking of, well, in a perfect world, we would all do this scenario. This is not in a perfect world what we would do. This is minimally acceptable conduct. And I think that's what we have to also keep in mind um, when we look at the, the principles and the rules. So the four principles, um, and I'm just gonna tell you what they are because everything we talk about comes under each of these four broad categories. Principle one is the responsibility to those we serve professionally. Principle two is responsibility for our own professional competence. Principle three is responsibility to the public. And principle four is responsibility for our professional relationships. And that doesn't just mean with other SLPs or audiologists. That means with anyone we work with in a professional capacity. Okay. So the first one, um, uh, number one, to the patients. That we principle serve. one, right. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have always, because I teach the tiny humans to eat and to drink and not necessarily to talk in multisyllabic words, but there, there's one in there called benefits. So help me out here, Ben, the do Beneficent. Yes. That's such a hard word for my mouth to articulate. Please say it again. <laughs> Beneficent. Yes. Okay. So folks, this is, this is the, um, the code of ethics component that I thought of when I had to make personally make that call that I referenced. I went in to do an eval and what I saw when I went to do the eval, I had to stop. I had to say, I cannot assess your little one's feeding and swallowing as everything that I'm saying, they are not safely managing their own secretions. I cannot add food to do a PO trial when I'm watching overt signs and symptoms of aspiration. Not only do no harm, but we're supposed to do good. And when I explained those concerns that I could proceed no further without an instrumental evaluation, that's where. That's where my belly went tight and I was threatened, but I had to lean in on my knowledge of my code of ethics and know that do no harm. And exactly. That's a good example, yeah. Michelle. And, it was, it was and that is why this is principle one. Yes. Yes. And it was, I mean, I honestly wept for like a day. Because I was threatened if I contacted the physician, but you know, you have to continuity of care. We have to explain these things, why I'm not accepting the patient that you referred to me, but it, and I mean, I came home and 
I have everybody that has listened to me before has, I mean, I totally admit my level of anxiety. It's profound. And I was incredibly anxious over the situation for a solid two days before I finally found peace. And it took my husband saying, if you went back, would you do anything different? And I said, no. And he goes, then let it be. And I was like, oh, Mr. Dawson. I mean, he's easy on the eyes, but he's pretty smart too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good gauge. And I also like when you said you had a knot in your belly. So often situations that uh, when we hear individuals come before the board, um, uh, we just had a case in Georgia not too long ago. And, uh, you know, the individual is basically stating their position as to how they got into a situation. And so often... These are the first words that come out of their mouth or words to this effect. It's something a lot of, uh, along the lines of something told me that maybe I shouldn't, or I had a funny feeling when I did this. It's always that acknowledgement that there was that little inner voice telling you, wait a minute, yes, wait a minute, check yourself before you wreck yourself. And <laughs> it's amazing how many of those Hey, uh, these cases that come up that end up in, you know, ethical violations, that's the first thing they say. It's like, if, if I had just listened to that. So, so that's a really good point, Michelle. Yes. That you got that knot in your stomach and you followed accordingly. You did not do it. You didn't proceed. It didn't feel right. And I stopped. I, I put my, my heels down. I was like, no, I'm not doing this. I mean, and then my clinical mind is like, oh my goodness, but you know, what can we do to save this baby? And this baby needs a feeding tube and blah, blah. And then I'm like, no, God, remember sometimes your job is to be the seed planter. You get in, you speak the truth, plant the seed. And then if it's meant, it comes back around. Right. But like, right. I, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And for the most part in our profession, we're not there to make life or death decisions. If we don't do something, it typically doesn't mean someone's going to die on the spot. And thank goodness <laughs> we are in a profession where that's the case um, because we're not mer- emergency medical technicians. No, or, there's too much you know, blood whatever. for me. I couldn't do that. There's too much yeah. blood. I'm out. Yeah. Stitches. Nope. Not so, doing it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the point is, listen to that small voice. Listen to it because it's telling you something. And that comes from something that is beyond your clinical skills and knowledge. So, okay. So then principal, um, uh, we went through the principles. You also need to understand that or be aware of the fact that your states also have codes of ethics or rules of conduct that could be called different things for licensure purposes. And then there's usually another code yet again for those who work in school settings. Um, In Georgia, there's something called the Code of Ethics for Georgia Educators. And it's for anyone who's employed in the public schools at a professional level. So it's not geared just for, you know, SLPs or whoever. But so you need to be aware of what those um, rules are uh, in your own states, as well as ASHA's Code of Ethics. Um, So that's kind of the backdrop, Michelle. Um, You had asked me to um, address some common types of ethical complaints. Would you like me to? Yes. To move into so, that. Okay. So what I I know what I deal with, but in the world of early intervention, we have um, everything from delayed speech, hearing loss, um, minor delays, all the way down to the least of these that we serve that are palliative care, hospice, quality of life, pleasure feeding. Right. That's a really wide gamut, and we have that transition from um, home health, excuse me, all the way up to the public schools. So I know what I see, given the population that I serve, might have a different type of ethical dilemma. But in the world of early intervention and just pediatric speech therapy in general, do you have three of the most common ethical complaints and concerns? Like, what are your, like, top three? Because I feel like probably um, in there. <laughs> what you feel like? What I is feel like there? billing is probably in there because I Yeah, I was going to say that... Um, so I'm going to start. I actually had seven, but some of them do overlap <laughs> with one another in terms of what, oh, how, how they all shake out in the yes. end. But, and these are the common types of, actually there were eight, but I took one away that really didn't apply to us. So, um, but these are the ones that are the most common types that have come before the ASHA Board of Ethics. And 
um, also come before this, my state board anyway, that are related to this. And you're absolutely right. One of the first ones, the, the top of the list is typically related to billing. And we call that, you know, a documentation lapse. So when, when, we, when we come to these um, um, scenarios, I'm just going to, so that again, you get the feeling of how the uh, board of, I mean, how the code of ethics is a working document. I'm going to point out where you could find examples of some of these things in the code. So if you suspected something wasn't right, or if you even think, heaven forbid, that you did something wrong, you can go and see if it's in the code somewhere. So a documentation lapse, which would be um, something that, oops, you made a mistake on your billing. Um, you would look under uh, principle of ethics one, rule Q. So all the, all the rules are letters. So rule Q will be down at the bottom because it starts with A. Individuals shall maintain timely, maintain timely records and accurately record and bill for services provided and products dispensed and shall not misrepresent services provided. Um, misrepresentation then of services is what we're talking about when we're looking at billing. Um, that could actually be a careless mistake. It could be something that you were just not uh, keeping up with your billing and you sat down at the end of the month to do it all. And you were thinking, I'm sure I saw that little kid that day. I'm just going to go ahead and put it in. Or I'm sure I was there 30 minutes and it might have been 20, but I'm just going to round it up. These are the types of things that it's, it's not something that someone has a grand scheme on how to defraud, but it's those little things that sometimes get us into trouble. So when we're talking about more of a grand scheme to defraud, we're looking at principle of ethics three, rule D, which is individuals shall not defraud through intent, ignorance, or negligence, or engage in any scheme to defraud in connection with obtaining payment, reimbursement, et cetera, et cetera. The rest is about grants and contracts. So, so again, we can find billing errors in more than one uh, place in the code of ethics. So when we look at reimbursement for services or documentation lapses or um, errors in billing, the ethical issues in, the, in that, come into that category, typically re do relate to intent or fraud or misrepresentation. And ASHA has a good document on that. Um, if you go on asha.org and put representation, I'm sorry, um, I can give you the whole link, but it's asha.org forward slash practice, forward slash ethics, forward slash representation of services. If you can't find it the way I just gave it to you, just go on the practice portal, look in ethics, and um, it'll be a link to a document. Another thing I can do, Michelle, is share these documents with you and you can... Share them with your that, listeners. Yeah, somehow? that would be have... fantastic because we have um, capabilities to um, tag them and add them to the Facebook page. Um, oh, great! So, okay, then I'll I'll do it yep. that way, and then they can look see the document Folks, right away. Can check it, the First Bite Facebook page, and we'll have it. Um, I'll get um, I'll get the super amazing Chad, the um, the guru producer behind the scenes, to add all that in. Because Lord knows that is I don't know. I am an old millennial and don't necessarily know how to social media that well. So, yay, go team! <laughs> all right, good. Well, there are a number of links that I have here, so I can just give you the whole thing, Perfect. and then you can sort through them if you like. Okay, great. Okay. So so, billing. Um, and folks, I've seen issues with billing as in which CPT code to use. Um, yep. And, um, you know, in South Carolina, we just had the addition of the swallowing CPT code. And we're one of two states where um, our 92507 treatment of language is timed. And 92526 treatment of feeding and swallowing is untimed, which has led to mass confusion. So, yeah. Uh, you know, if you have questions, be sure to reach out uh, to if I mean, truthfully, if you have questions at the end of the day, your individual Department of Health and Human Services or whoever does your Medicaid billing within your state, 
check their websites. They have CMS manuals. Also reach out to your ASHA star representative. They are your state advocacy for reimbursement for Medicaid. And oh my goodness, Melanie, is it the stamp that's the state advocate advocate for Medicare? Um, I think no. it is. Yeah, there's the star and there. No, there's SMAC. Is that? No. I think it's, star, SMAC, maybe and it's stamp, stamp because that's not confusing. Yeah, Check your right. state association you're website. Right. One does billing for Medicaid. At, um, that's the star. And I right. the SMAC or the stamp does it for Medicare. Whew. We need easier yeah. acronyms. <laughs> acronyms. I know. I think it is SMAC, yeah. but yeah, but double yes, check but that. Those, but but some of the charges. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, but those those are your go-tos for your individual state. And you can always reach up to ASHA, but um, I have found that they can give you big picture advice on this, but they'll um, often send you back to your state liaison because they know the inner workings within your state and can connect you with your state exactly. contact. So from two exactly. old presidents, check your state association. There Good. you go. Yep. 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 That's right. So a couple of things, um, uh, with reimbursement before we move on to the next area would be um, keeping in mind that it's not going to come down to the motivation that was behind the, the mistaken billing. If, if it was to save time and you didn't want to actually go back and verify that you saved, uh, that you provided services, or if it was actually a grand scheme to do this and knowing full well, you were doing it to pad your income and anything in between, um, there's really no delineation. Well, of well, they didn't know what they were doing, or it was a careless mistake. We all make mistakes. That's not the way a board is going to look at that. Um, it may be that the sanction will be a little different um, if you you know have a fraud scheme and it's been going on for a couple of years, and you know we we've, we've had. Um, we had one in Georgia not just a few years ago who spent uh, two years in prison for Medicaid fraud. She ran three private practices, and it was a grand we, scheme. We had it down in South um, Carolina, and I think the jail sentence was like yeah. three years to the tune of several million dollars. It yep. happens. I mean, it, Medicaid fraud is a federal crime. That goes beyond anything that ASHA could ever do to you or a state licensure board. That's That's a drop in the bucket compared to going to prison, federal prison. So yeah, you do, you've got to be careful. And I think that's the bottom line. Just make sure what you're documenting is indeed what happened and teach your employees, your uh, clinical fellows, anyone that is um, you know, being allowed to uh, bill without you overseeing it necessarily, make sure that they are doing it correctly. Um, another thing that this can all under is the scheduling of services more frequently or for longer than is reasonably necessary. Yes. Oh my gosh. I see that in the world of early intervention. I, yes, yes, that is that call. That's a, yes, 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 yes. All the, field. and another way to word that could be providing services when there is no reasonable expectation of significant communication or swallowing benefit for the person served. Kind of the, well, it wouldn't hurt to, to add a few more sessions on. Or the parents who say, well, we'll pay cash because the insurance has run out. We know the insurance isn't approving it. If, uh, if you just keep you know, working with our child, we'll pay you cash. And that's very tempting because now you don't have to justify it to an insurance company or to Medicaid. Um, they're going to pay you cash. And it, it would be very tempting to say, well, you know, it wouldn't hurt. I'll just keep doing this till, you know, the parents say they don't want to pay anymore. These are scenarios that have happened that, that we've seen. So um, in a case like that, it isn't even nece necessarily true that they were harming the, the child, but it gets back to um, there's no reasonable expectation of benefit. They've pretty much reached the benefit that they're going to get, but you're just going to do it to kind of, you know, well, it won't hurt them with that mindset. And that's, that um, falls into that category of, of um, billing for services that you probably shouldn't be billing for. Um, 
So we can find that also in principle of ethics four, rule E, individuals shall not engage in dishonesty, negligence, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. Sometimes these can, uh, demands can come from a, a supervisor. They may want you to increase your caseload. They may tighten down on your, your time limits. They may demand higher product, production quotas, and it's now in, conflicting with your professional independent judgment. So you have to reconcile that as well sometimes. And y'all, you can stand up for yourselves. You can. It may not feel like it. It may feel like they um, are forcing you. But at the end of the day, when you share, if you were to sit down and have the crucial conversation and lay out the ethics and say, you are, what you are asking me to do, I, I cannot do because of this, this, or this. And sometimes I have found if you, if you're not, if you don't have the relationship with your superior to have that conversation verbally, if you document it in a written email, that will affect change rather dramatically quickly because then you've also created a paper trail. And what you said right. in a lot of verbal conversations, once you, um, hey, regarding our conversation earlier this morning, these are my concerns and phrase it that way. I have found that that um, individuals will change their tune, so to speak. Yep. Yes. Good yep. point. Very good point. Um, one thing that I would um, also, in, in thinking about um, early intervention in particular, is because of the wonderful way it's approached with a team looking at the needs of, of the children, we can get into that area of practicing outside the scope. When one of us picks up where the other one left off and the other one may not be an SLP or vice versa. And that can be a gray area. Remember I said ethics is pretty much black and white, but there's also some gray. I think especially for early intervention um, providers, this can be a gray area that comes up more than maybe in some other types of um, uh, settings or service delivery uh, situations. So practicing outside the scope of our, pra of our practice as speech-language pathologists comes under principle two, rule A. Individuals who hold the CCC shall engage in only those aspects of the professions that are within the scope of their professional practice and competence, considering their certification status, education, training, and experience. So um, take a look at the ASHA scope of practice just to make sure that it actually was revised in 2016, same year the most recent Code of Ethics was revised. And ASHA also has really good information on the website about collaboration and teaming and interprofessional practice. Those are the words you want to put in search boxes or go on the practice portal and look at those. There are specific policy guidelines there for you on how to collaborate and be part of a team and how to engage in interprofessional practice without um, having to wonder if you're outside of your scope and if you are, what, what are those boundaries? So I would just suggest that for anyone in early intervention, you just be aware of that. Um, there's one that um, I did want to touch base on. It's the importance of referrals. And because oh. I have seen that, um, I make a lot of referrals. I make a lot of referrals right. because of the medical complexities of the kids. And y'all, that is within our scope. Because I had um, a student inform me one time that she didn't think it was appropriate for me to be requesting uh, ENT referrals. And I explained to her that it is within our scope of practice to make all necessary referrals. And Lord help me, I can't remember what it, which specific code it was. But if a child has clear airway obstruction component, I have to make a referral to an ENT because how is a child supposed to functionally eat and swallow if they can't breathe first, first respiration, then deglutition. And, um, you know, we 
bring a horse to water. We can't always make them drink, but um, that y'all, we are supposed to make appropriate referrals. And that's, that's, um, that one, that one always, that one always yeah. I go back to, because I feel like that was a breakdown and somehow in my teaching, like, how did I, I feel like something I did did not, I, I was not able to communicate why, you know what I mean? But that's just right. that's personal growth. How about that? <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's good. And we all. We all uh, engage in that and by, by interest and desire, but also by requirement. That's why we have to have continuing ed for uh, licensure and, and ASHA certification. So, um, yeah. And again, like I said, there's some gray areas with, with ethics, but always err on the side of um, looking a little deeper into it. Uh, and I'm going to mention this probably a couple of times, but you can always, always call the ethics office at ASHA and ask for advice. That's what they're there for. And they, they're, it's a wonderful staff. So take advantage of that. So another area, and this is, we're seeing more and more, this is a rapidly growing area of complaint, is client abandonment. Yup. Um, Someone who's got a job and, and they find something better and they leave. And there's no one there to cover their caseload. And we've had situations, you know, that truly fall under that definition in all settings. So it isn't limited to working with children or working in, um, you know, medical facilities. It, it, it's everywhere. And part of it, I think, and this is just my opinion, is because we have so many job opportunities as speech language pathologists. You know, for some careers, for some professionals, it takes a long time to find a job. And once you have it, you better hold on to it. Because if you lose that job, it's going to take you a long time to find another one. And you stay in a job because you need the, the pay, You're not necessarily because you love it. One of the great things about our profession is that we don't have to stay in a job because we have to. If we don't love it anymore, for whatever reason, there's a whole lot of other options that we can explore. And um, so client abandonment, you, you are, we're seeing more and more of this. And that's just my opinion. As I said, I think it's because we do have so many options out there for employment. And if we're not liking what we're doing for a variety of reasons, we just go on to the next thing. So this is in the ASHA code of ethics. Um, the, this, uh, area of client abandonment. Principle of Ethics 1, Rule T. Individuals shall provide reasonable notice and information about alternatives for obtaining care in the event that they can no longer provide professional services. So you will note there that it doesn't say 30 days notice. <laughs> there, you're not going to see a number on there because reasonable is the operative word. For some jobs, as soon as you leave, they could have 20 people lined up to hire in your place. So maybe a job like that, reasonable would be, you know, two days, two weeks, whatever. Other places, it took them months to find someone. You're in a remote part of a state that doesn't have a whole lot of licensed SLPs to begin with. It took forever to find you and you got that job. And if you leave, it may take them forever to find another one. So reasonable in that situation probably wouldn't be two days or even two weeks. So that's why reasonable is on there. The other side of that, though, just from the standpoint of the practitioner, is you, you also can't let an employer hold you hostage because through no fault of your own, they can't find another person to um, fill your position. So there is a balance between as I said, holding you hostage or giving someone reasonable notice. But whatever is determined reasonable notice to be in a given situation, you also have to make sure that when you leave, whoever comes in behind you has nothing to clean up. It is turnkey. You have left it so that they can hit the ground running and you're not going to have to be... Um, um, looking back over your shoulder, hoping that you 
uh, did everything um, for the welfare of your patients and your clients. And that's what it comes so, down to. So I want to add yeah. a layer in there. One of the other DSS calls that I have to make, honestly, at least once every six months, I have to make a call akin to this. I go to the house, I go to a therapy session, and there is clearly either a drug deal going on in the other room, clearly drugs have recently been used in the home, or the loved one is under the influence of um, narcotics at that moment. In instances like that, when we have to make the contact call to DSS, to the police, to the physician, uh, it, and it becomes a clinician safety factor, then, then folks, don't go back there. Don't, if you are concerned for your physical well-being, retaliation, if there's drugs already in the home that's akin to violence, I have, I have caught, one time I was reading the local news and there was a, um, a murder and a, and I was working in a trailer park community, you know, 30 minutes Southeast of the city. And I went to go do a therapy session. It didn't feel right. I was pretty sure there was some, their drugs, but I couldn't, you know, how you just can't peg it and it, but it doesn't feel right. Then to catch the news a little later where there was a murder, um, on that block and confirmed drug use and gang activity and blah, blah. Oh. And so my husband, I was like, Oh, I go there. And my husband was like, you're not going there anymore. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, but those are, that's when personally in my, in my documentation, I write due to clinician safety factors, it is most appropriate that the child be taken to a clinic. And then I rattle off recommendations for the closest geographic clinic or hospital, I contact that over with physician, with early interventionists and give recommendations to them, specifically request this person. Once the referral is made, I will gladly call that clinician and let them know what's going on and what, what to, you know, where the kid is. But if you are fearful for your life or well-being to go back, you're not doing anybody good. Very good point. And, and actually, that speaks to the ASHA statement on client abandonment. It says prior to departing, or in your case, if you got there and felt like, I'm not even going to go, something doesn't feel right, I'm, I'm not even going to get out of my car. So prior to making that decision, a professional must make effective efforts to provide for the patient's continuing care. And you did that. You just described what That's you did. That's because, unfortunately, I have to do Way too often. Well, and you provided for the care. It doesn't mean that you're the one that has to go do it. And that if you don't get out of your car and go see a patient or a, a child in that type of um, situation, that you're abandoning them. Um, if, if your health and safety and welfare are going to be compromised, you're not going, going to be accused of client abandonment. But in not seeing that child, you did make arrangements um, or you made effective efforts is the term to provide for their continuing care because you were no longer yep. going to do that. So, um, and, so. and also on that note, I had a dear friend who went to go do therapy in a home and she realized that the, a family member was recording them um, unbeknownst to her. She caught cameras. And there was suspected domestic abuse in the home. I've had another colleague who went to go do therapy and felt uncomfortable because they suspected domestic abuse. And the father kept walking around with his pistol on his hip um, and was making inappropriate commentary to the clinician. So y'all, those are, those are yeah. I mean, you got to be tough as nails to work in early intervention. <laughs> Saying, yeah, really, truthfully, patient safety, clinician safety, too. So you're right. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why many states do not allow um, provisionally licensed mm -hmm. SLPs to practice. I did not know that. They have to be fully licensed. Yes, that's one of the reasons. Uh, the main reason really is they wouldn't be able to probably have the supervision yeah. that they should have. But. Someone who's provisionally licensed isn't 
fully independent yet, and they may not be as likely to be in a situation where they could make a decision like what you've just described. How do I handle this? Because they haven't had enough experience yet to, to step back and, and make a decision that might mean leaving or, uh, you know, handling it in a way that someone who's had some experience, you know, might be better that, able to handle. That's your super so. polite way of referencing my gray hairs, but I appreciate it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, my but you're right. So speaking of drugs, we can get into the area of an impaired practitioner. How, how often can so we just can, have a casual segue? I, uh, we, can. we can. Well, that was a great segue because rather than talking about the, the clients or the client's family members who might be impaired, um, you may have colleagues who are impaired. And there's a term, the impaired practitioner. And the def definition is an individual whose professional practice is adversely affected by addiction, substance abuse, or health-related and or mental health-related conditions. <clears throat> they have, if you have reason to think that, you know, there's an issue there, they might be someone you would categorize as having what we call diminished decision-making ability. And that is defined by a condition that renders a person unable to form the specific intent necessary to determine a reasonable course of action. Um, it's right in the Code of Ethics, Principle of Ethics 1, just the principle itself. Individuals shall honor their responsibility to hold paramount the welfare of persons they serve professionally. So if someone is impaired, they clearly aren't doing that. And rule A under principle one is individuals shall provide all services competently. Well, clearly, if someone is impaired and fits the definition that I just provided, they're not able to provide all services competently. So this can be a sticky area if you're observing now, this in a colleague. And by the way, I, not, I was just going to oh, ask, go ahead. I have had concerns in the past about individuals that were beginning with potential early sign symptoms of dementia or Alzheimer's in forgetfulness, not necessarily impaired in the sense of um, drug or alcohol use, but actual physiological, cognitive, or physical decline due to. Yeah, I had a colleague in that situation. Um, so I'll read the impaired practitioner definition again. An individual whose professional practice is adversely affected by addiction, substance abuse, or health-related and or mental health-related conditions. That would be health-related. So um, again, the, the, the thing here, it gets sticky because the issues surrounding this type of situation may be as much legal as they are ethical. Um, Impaired professional, professionals pose a liability to our clients and even to our colleagues at times. So you have to address these, these issues, these concerns, if you see them. But um, this type of ethical dilemma typically should not be taken on by one person. As a rule, I would suggest you go to the supervisor within a facility, the director, the owner of the practice or the business, an attorney, um, some, uh, depending on where you work, there may be an employee assistant program counselor. There may be an ethics officer or a compliance officer. But usually there's one or more of those that come under those uh, titles in your world of where you're working that you can go to and you do not have to address this alone. You don't have to have, you know, a confrontation with someone. You don't have to have a critical conversation with someone. Um, you can go to someone that I just mentioned and um, have that conversation, express that concern. And then at that point, you've really done all you are required to do from an ethical or a legal standpoint in those situations. You, you don't have to feel like you've got to do it all yourself or you've ignored it. Now, if you do go to someone and they say they will take care of it, and it's obvious to you that nothing's changed, they just, they're avoiding the situation, then you would need to follow up. Maybe go to someone else who can address it 
maybe go back to that same individual and say it doesn't look like anything's happened. In fact, things even look like they're getting worse. They don't necessarily owe you an explanation, maybe, maybe working behind the scenes, but you do need to follow up if it looks to you that, that the, again, the welfare of the, of the clients, the patients, the students, whatever, are, uh, is being compromised. Um, and if you're a supervisor of an individual that falls under that category, that's a whole different part of the code of ethics in addition to, or a separate one, Principle of Ethics 4, Rule 1, individuals shall not knowingly allow anyone under their supervision to engage in any practice that violates the Code of Ethics. So that's covered there. And uh, Principle of Ethics 1, Rule 5, individuals who have knowledge that a colleague is unable to provide professional services with reasonable skill and safety shall report this information to the appropriate authority internally if a mechanism exists, and otherwise externally. So it's right there for you. Um, no turning yes, a blind and it's eye. it's so much to process. And that's where that impaired practitioner also applies to not just SLPs. And that's where it's always... I've, I've had worries right. about, you know, a couple of colleagues that were older and... You know, you have to address those with topics with grace, but they weren't actually SLPs. You know, they were teachers or they were early interventionists or they were in different professions. I mean, you know, there was um, a neurologist here in town a couple years ago that um, everybody knew. I don't want to go there. But finally, colleagues had to intervene and say, it's time to be done now you know and that that's yeah um that's gloom and doom if you look at it from one perspective but if you look at it from another perspective you are doing that fancy b word that i can't ever pronounce ben beneficence <laughs> say that again beneficence it sounds like abracadabra do no harm <laughs> or all that i know it does but think do no harm and that doesn't mean yourself in all cases, it means don't be a witness yes. to someone doing harm and, and turn I, a blind I eye. I will practice being um, able to say that word. I promise. It's going to take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Write it out yeah. phonetically. Well, you it. haven't seen my spelling. <laughs> so, you know, I'm from White Oak, Virginia. Like I said earlier, I'm happy I have all my teeth, but like, oh, hey, oh, hey, all right. Okay. So we have oh. only... um. Eight minutes left because I have to allocate uh, um, allocate time for Q and A. So with our eight minutes left, um, if SLPs are listening, how can they avoid these circumstances and dilemmas? Because you've given us a lot of resources, and I'm grateful that you did. You've given us a lot of resources throughout. But if they come across these, how do they avoid them, or what? And I feel like rule number one, avoiding them, right. is to, you know. You know, earn your CEUs, mm -hmm. actually get through your ashes. Yes. But yeah, so there's your, your course. Let's go there. Okay. So there's a little checklist I have here, avoiding ethical dilemmas. First one is advocate for best practices. I would suggest that you um, go to the practice portal and look at some evidence mapping. Um, just make sure that what you're doing is what you should be doing in terms of your treatment. Um, in terms of your um, uh, documentation. And there are a lot of resources available to you, as, as you said, Michelle, as part of your continuing ed, but also right at your fingertips whenever you need it, where you um, not only provide everything that's evidence-based and that's, that you know is to be best practice, but that you advocate for that. Um, know and understand the ASHA Code of Ethics. Don't let something come up later and say, I had no idea I wasn't allowed to do that, because that's another thing we hear a lot when people go before the board. They, they weren't doing anything that was necessarily egregious. No, there was not always, you know, serious harm done, but it could be something like um, practicing without a license. And they weren't doing anything any differently than when they had a license. They just forgot to renew their license. And they'll say, well, I didn't know it was time to do that. Um, 
So, you know, some of the things are, are pretty um, self-evident, but it's amazing how many times you hear people say, well, I didn't know. And um, knowing what your code of ethics says, knowing what your employer's handbook says, those are things that you do have control over and you, you do need to stay informed. Um, connect the code of ethics with your program's mission statement, their policies and procedures, and with their performance evaluations of your performance. So connect those dots there. Make sure that any supervisors or administrators or colleagues um, that you work with are um, acquainted with the code of ethics, or at least know that you have one, that uh, you can provide them with issues and ethics statements and share with them some of the potentials for ethical conflicts. Um, have the discussions about things that could come up with, with um, billing errors or other areas that could be of concern before they happen. Um, and then, of course, review your federal, your state, and your, lo your local regulations and requirements. I already pointed out to you that state licensure boards have their rules and uh, boards of ed have their, um, and sometimes called a code of ethics. There's also a really good document that ASHA has on um, avoiding ethical dilemmas. It's written for schools-based SLPs, but there's some good stuff in there that applies to any SLP. And I will share that link with you as well, Michelle. Um, so, so that's avoiding. Um, if you wanna get into solving an ethical dilemma, I would say that, um, again, the ASHA website has some very good um, links to that that I can also provide. Always call first if you're concerned. Don't just go right to filing an ethical complaint because you can do that directly from the ASHA website. Before I, I you have, file, I one thought. call. Also, give yourself yeah. time to breathe. I have had situations yes. where I was, and I've got enough Irish in my blood that I go from zero to 180 at the drop of a hat, right? And, and I know that. I know a hot head runs in my family. But I have had to physically give myself 24 hours to cool off before I made any calls or complaints or emails. Because do, Absolutely. do nothing out of anger or haste because that's actually in, I mean, not those exact words. Those are my educated redneck words. But um, filing a complaint um, that is done to harm or harass is actually a violation of our code of ethics. I mean, I'm not saying I did it to harm or harass, but the perception could be. Right. So no, but you can call the, um, the uh, ethics yep. office at ASHA. And if you're just inquiring, you don't have to give yes. names at that point. You can just say, I have a situation. I need yes. advice. Um, and that way they can walk you through what you need to do. But we'll, you know, we can basically sum this up by saying principle of ethics four rule M, because it speaks to what you just said, Michelle. Individuals with evidence that the code of ethics may have been violated, and it says may have been, have the responsibility to work collaboratively to resolve the situation where possible, or to inform the board of ethics through its established procedures. So Michelle, you're absolutely right. You don't just fill out a complaint to the Board of Ethics. You'll work collaboratively to resolve the situation. That may mean some of the things I said earlier. Go to a supervisor, go to the employee assistance counselor, uh, wherever you work, you know, depending on what they have. Um, call ASHA's ethics office and get advice. Or you can email ASHA at, um, their, their email address is ethics at asha.org. That will go to the ethics office as an email, and someone in the ethics office will respond to you if you'd rather not make the phone call. So, um, and you can do all that while you're breathing. You're not going to, you know, ruin anybody's career just by putting out some preliminary questions and um, trying yep. to resolve and, and this. I, and I have found that if you go about something with a calm head and not in the heat of the moment, you can actually take a pot, a negative situation and turn it for positive. So, yeah. Right. So Now, obviously, if you saw something 
terribly egregious. Uh, I, you know, someone who's, who's really harming a child. Um, you're not going to just think, well, let me get let me see if I can get an appointment with the employee assistance counselor. Or let me see if I can get their supervisor, you know, when I'm all done today. And no, you, you may have to call 911 or Child Protective Services, and then they're going to ask you to file a complaint. We're mandatory so obviously, so we are you know, mandatory reporters. Exactly. So, um, but there's a range of behaviors and there's a range of actions that you can take depending on what the behaviors are. Gray, dude. I hate gray, but gray it is, right? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Okay. Y'all, I've said it on other episodes. We all gripe. And I know that today is December 17th. It's the end of the year. And trust me, I will be the person that pays their ASHA dues at the end of the year because um, I've got two <laughs> tiny humans and two brothers who have birthdays and a husband who all have birthdays like four weeks before Christmas, right? So I get it. But our dues go to more than what you realize. And the practice portal, the web tools that um, Melanie has referenced, people take time out to create those documents. People take, people are there to answer your questions and give you functional resources on the ethical dilemmas that you face because our, our dues go towards good. Trust me, I was the one who years ago complained about, oh my God, it's like all the monies at Christmas and ugh, but it does go towards good. So that lovely fancy word, benefin, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> huh, you know what I'm trying to say? We're just going to let the fancy people say it, but it, it does go towards good. So um, there it is. But um, Melanie, if anyone has any questions, how can they reach you? And can you take two seconds to talk about that newest edition that just came out in November of your book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the fifth edition of Professional Issues in Speech Language Pathology and Audiology. Um, Mark DeRyder and I are the co-editors, and we've each written a few chapters. It's got 30 chapters. There is a chapter on ethics that uh, was written by Janie Handelsman, uh, former ASHA president. Um, we have, uh, I've written a chapter on supervision along with Mary Sue Fino Shumsky, who's an audiologist at Vanderbilt. So we covered both professions in that chapter. Um, we've got a uh, chapter on working in early intervention by Corey Cassidy, who's a dean at Radford University. And she wrote all of the, um, I don't know what it's called, for early intervention services being provided in Virginia. She basically wrote the code and all the, yeah. So um, she was Corey Heard, uh, Corey Cassidy, Corey Heard Cassidy is her name. So anyway, so great chapter on that. Um, and I think it, it's a it's a textbook, but it's also a desk reference for practitioners and plural publishing will have that out at the ASHA convention in November. Um, they're taking pre-orders now, but, um, and if you would like to reach me directly, I'd be more than happy to uh, answer any questions. And if I don't know the answers, I will get them for you. My email is Melanie Hudson, SLP, as in speech language pathologist, all one word, at Comcast.net. Beautiful. Melanie Hudson, SLP, at Comcast.net. Yes. And I will get these links to you, Michelle. Thank you. So that um, I'll just send them to you in PowerPoint format so that you can uh, cannibalize it as you, as you wish. <laughs> Yes, we'll turn it into a digestible format. Ha, 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 ha. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And um, I just have to give a shout out to my sweet friend, um, Mernie Mern, who is a, a lovely graduate student here in town and has been, um, we've adopted her into my family and um, we kind of fangirl together. So Mernie Mern, say hi. Hi. <laughs> and um and I do know that her kid brother has quite the isn't it a YouTube channel where he sings? What what is his YouTube channel? Coker015 Productions. And um uh and uh let's just go with uh we have um a lot of joy to be found in his productions and that um um Mernie Mern is a sweet advocate for her brother and for Camp Royale in uh, North Carolina. 
which is an autism support group, um, respite care, fun camp of awesomeness for all ages from four to 65 years of age. So um, just have to spread joy every which way we can. So um, if you're in North Carolina, that's wonderful. It's, it's amazing. She was camp director over there and um, in between undergrad and grad school. And like uh, it, the camp does so many good things. So if anybody's looking for a great resource or if anybody um, has um, um, a little bit of extra love money at the end of the year, as my daddy calls it, and wants to do a good fundraiser, check out Camp Royale. Am I saying that right? Beautiful. I can say Camp Royale right, but I can't say Benefitness. <laughs> so there, there it is. Uh, well, That's you know, I'll get there one day, one day I'll adult. Okay. So um, thank you, Melanie, for your time and everybody listening. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Hug your peeps. Enjoy the last couple of weeks of 2019 and Melanie hold the line so I can switch over to questions. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. Okay. So what you doing on Friday, January 24th at 1130 to 1230? The correct answer is joining me along with all of our closest colleagues at the January 2020 Feeding Matters online conference. And the two conference or specific lectures that will be going on right then and there. The first one is a family panel led by Dr. Tara Welker. And she's going to lead a panel discussion interviewing three uh, family members and caretakers for children that have pediatric feeding disorders. While simultaneously, they will also be having a separate lecture on family stress and trauma and feeding disorders and how we can support the whole family by Dr. Megan Marsek. Uh, these, these are critical to what it is that we do as professionals because we're not just treating the child. We are working collaboratively as a team to put tools in the hands of the caregivers because they're the ones that are there day in and day out. And I hope that y'all will join me on Friday, January 24th at 1130 to uh, better learn yourself how to help our families. So see y'all That's there, a wrap, virtually. folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Feed those babies.